Well, good morning. Such a nice morning out there, isn't it? <laughs> I'm glad you all braved the elements to be with us. It's good to be with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Lynn Ericks. Uh, my husband Doug and I have been married almost 10 years this summer. We've got two kids, Rachel, who's six, and David, who's four. And I was trying to think how long I've been coming to Habits. I think this is around year eight, but I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, but I really never thought that during this time in this ministry, I'd be here behind this lectern. So watch out, all you who's sitting there. You might find yourself here. But it's truly my privilege to be here. Let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you for the time that you've set aside for us to learn this morning from your word. I thank you for each woman here in this ministry, those who are not. What a blessing it is to come together and learn from your word. I pray that you would um, use my words this morning, Lord, to just um, impart a lot of truth and that that truth would um, affect our daily lives, Lord. We trust that your word can accomplish all of this and more. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw how Paul was delivered from the hands of 40 Jews who vowed to kill him. It was a dramatic scene. There was physical protection of 470 soldiers. Paul was delivered to Caesarea to await trial before Governor Felix, and that's where our text picks back up today in chapter 24. We have a full text today covering three chapters, just like last week when Diana spoke, so I feel a lot like her this morning. We have a lot to get through, so bear with me. So we'll see Paul defend himself three times over the course of several years before three different officials, Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. It's a little taste of Roman civil procedure. Doesn't that sound like fun? (laughs) Well, we won't focus so much on civil procedure as I thought, Um, but just so we understand what's happening, we'll recap what's happening in the text, and then we'll spend some time um, highlighting some important truths that I really didn't expect that God would have, but he did. So first, by studying how Paul defends the gospel, we'll see how we should stand and testify to the gospel ourselves. Second, we'll see Paul's deep commitment to God's calling in his life, despite his circumstances, due to the help of God. And that's going to be our main focus this morning, God's help. We'll see what God's word says about his help throughout scripture, Then we'll look at why we need God's help and why we can trust God to help us. Finally, we'll look at how we are to be helpful as image bearers of Christ. So before we get to the application, let's dive into our text. We'll start with chapter 24 where Paul is before Felix. This is really the only time where it is most like a true trial out of the three. It's dramatic also. As I said earlier, Paul has narrowly escaped the Jews and their plot to kill him. He's waited five days under Governor Felix's control in Caesarea, being held in Herod's praetorium. The praetorium is most likely a large residence that was home to the praetor, which is the root word of praetorium. In Latin, praetor refers to the magistrate who's responsible for identifying and framing the legal issues in a case and for ordering the lay judge to uh, hear the evidence and decide the case in accordance with a formula. In this case, the praetor's Felix. And as we shall see, he is in no rush to frame the legal issues, as Paul is there for two years. However, 
trial cannot begin until Paul's accusers arrive in Caesarea because Roman law requires face-to-face accusations. His accusers do come with their lawyer, Tertullus, who begins his charge by buttering up most excellent Felix, who, by the way, wasn't so excellent. In reality, Felix was cruel, violent, and corrupt, and the Jews were scared of him, not thankful for him, as Felix, or as Tertullus would make you think. Felix was married to Tricilla, who scandalously divorced her first husband through Felix's plot. After his flattery, and it truly is flattery, and I wonder if this is why lawyers today say, may it please the court before they address the judge. It's all about buttering up. Well, Tertullus lays out his three charges against Paul. He stirred up riots, he was a ringleader of a Nazarene sect, and he tried to desecrate the temple. This should sound familiar. You read it this week, and it was also addressed last week as well. Tertullus's accusations more closely resemble an opening statement, though, giving the judge a roadmap of all the charges for which the accused is being tried. When I read this text, I find it so interesting how different it is from our modern-day court system. Where is the evidence presented? Who are the witnesses with testimony to corroborate the evidence? Well, Luke only tells us generally in verse 24-9 that, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. If that is so, we can only assume the Jews were falsely testifying concerning Paul's actions, which would have been a crime in itself, perjury. I wouldn't put it past them. However, Paul is allowed to respond to the accusations, and his defense is really a presentation of his beliefs in the gospel. Methodically, he answers each charge that Tertullus outlined. He full-heartedly denies that he stirred up riots, and he reminded them he was there in Jerusalem to worship, not to argue or cause dissension. In fact, he purified himself before entering the temple and did not bring a Greek into the temple as the Jews said he had. As we saw last week, Claudius, Claudius had already investigated these accusations and had found that, there, that they held no merit. He moves on to the second charge. Paul denies that his faith should constitute a sect, but instead renames it as the way. In explaining the way, Paul finds common ground with his Jewish audience by emphasizing the God of our fathers and believing in the law and the prophets. By doing this, Paul's emphasizing his loyalty to the Jewish faith and how his hope in Christ is consistent with this Jewish faith and not in direct conflict, as the Jews seek to prove. Like we've seen throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he is all things to all people, time and time again. The last accusation is the most serious for Paul, because the Romans had given the Jews and their Sanhedrin council wide authority to to handle offenses against their temple. He vehemently denies this charge. I love how Paul ends his account. He's such a get-to-the-point kind of guy. And he wastes no time in spelling out exactly why he is on trial in verse 21. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. This sounds familiar. These were Paul's words in Acts 23.8 when he addressed the Jerusalem council. There he said, It is with respect to the hope in the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The resurrection is the key. It's the crux, and it polarizes. Either you believe it or you do not. It's that critical. After hearing from both sides, Felix finds that Paul is innocent of breaking Roman law. 
However, he continues to hold Paul in custody, even though he cannot find fault in him for really three reasons. He wants a bribe. His Jewish wife, Drusilla, wants to hear about his teachings. And politically, and probably this is the biggest reason, he wants to keep the peace throughout his territory. And pleasing the Jews is the only way to keep the peace. During the time Paul is kept in custody under Felix, Luke tells us that Paul has some liberty and that his friends shouldn't be prevented from visiting him. We presume that Luke may have visited him during this time and perhaps Philip the Evangelist, who lived in Caesarea with his daughters and who you recall he visited when he was in Caesarea. That was back in chapter uh, 21. Perhaps Paul was given these visiting rights because of his Roman citizenship, which afforded him a different type of imprisonment than another prisoner with a different citizenship. Regardless, these freedoms were a grace of God and surely were no accident. I can only surmise that Paul received much encouragement in building up during these visits with dear friends that he certainly would need to endure his trip to Rome. My mind wanders, supposing what could have happened during those two years that he was imprisoned under Felix. Was this the time that he penned some of his letters that are contained in the New Testament? Well, as best as I can tell, none of them were written during this time. Most of them are written either earlier or later, many of them during his Roman imprisonment. We don't know for sure what happened during these years because Luke doesn't provide us with the details. Presumably, though, Paul used his time in Caesarea to witness about his faith in Christ to any and all who would listen, including Drusilla and Felix, as Luke tells us that Paul reasoned with Felix on some not-too-little issues, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. It's a heavy conversation. These subjects Luke listed seemingly were narrowly tailored to the blatant sins in Felix's life, as he did anything but lead a self-controlled life. Well, Felix's reign doesn't continue indefinitely, and he's replaced by Festus. It's a little confusing with all these F names. But Festus wastes no time in getting to the matter of Paul. After being in power for only three days, he goes directly to Jerusalem to speak with, to speak with the Jews and the chief priests concerning Paul. Rather than giving in to them and bringing Paul to Jerusalem as they requested, Festus instructs them to come to Caesarea to formally bring charges against Paul again. The details this time are scant. Luke mentions generally that the charges are many and serious, and Paul's defense focuses only on the omission of a crime rather than an outright declaration of his faith as he provided before Felix. But the very important words Paul uttered change the course of his life when he says, I appeal to Caesar, to which Festus responds, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. What's going on here? Was a guilty verdict rendered and now Paul's appealing the verdict to Caesar? No. This isn't like our court system where a defendant is found guilty and then he's appealing or has the right to appeal the verdict to a higher court within the system. Instead, Paul's activated his right as a Roman citizen to be protected from summary punishment, execution, or torture without trial. Paul knew that the basis of the allegations against him were religious in nature, so he, had not, he knew he had not violated any Roman law. Being tried by Caesar, therefore, was a safe bet and a surefire way that he could get to Rome. It also ensured that Festus would not turn him over to the hands of the Jews, which most certainly would have ended in Paul's death. Paul knew the only way to Rome at this point was through the Roman justice system. 
No justice was available to him from the Jews. Perhaps Paul uttered these words when he uttered these words. I appeal to Caesar. He was thinking of the Lord's promise to him in Acts 23, 11. Take courage, for as you have testified the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Luke next details the visit King Agrippa makes to Festus. Festus summarizes to the king all that has happened to Paul under his reign and even before with Felix. It almost feels like Festus feels a little at a loss of what to do. He knows Paul isn't guilty, and yet he continues to hold him in custody. He has the charges, but no evidence to support. Why doesn't Festus just let Paul go? Because he's appealed to Caesar. As commentator John Stott says, to acquit Paul now would be to short-circuit his appeal, and so to invade the emperor's territory. No provincial judge would do that. So it would have been political suicide for Festus to let Paul go. But then Festus feels stuck. What's he going to say to Caesar as to why Paul is before him? It's a bit of a political conundrum for Festus, which is perhaps why he discusses the matter with Agrippa in the first place. And he must place great faith in Agrippa because he overtly expects that after Agrippa hears from Paul, Festus will know exactly what to write to Caesar concerning Paul's charges and trial. Despite his confusion on what to say, however, Festus was not confused about the true reason why Paul and the Jews were in conflict. In Acts 25, 18 through 19, Festus says, When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Isn't that interesting that Festus is able to clearly summarize in one sentence what the main issue is? He must have been listening to Paul because he said it so many times before. It's the fact that Paul believes in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, after Agrippa hears from Festus all that's happened concerning Paul, Agrippa is very curious and he requests to hear from Paul. It's a great big ordeal as the king and his wife come into the audience hall along with military tribunes and all the prominent men of the city. Indeed, Luke says they come in with great pomp. Pomp, now that's a fun word, not one you hear very often. It means ostentatious and boastfully splendid and is the root word for pompous, which of course is not an adjective any of us would like to be used in a sentence with our own name. Paul's defense before Agrippa has a much different flavor than before Felix or Festus. Instead of a methodical answering to each charge as Paul presented before Felix, he now focuses on his own conversion and testifies personally to how the gospel has transformed him. In doing so, Paul reminds him of his Pharisee upbringing and how he persecuted Christians with raging fury. Then he again highlights the resurrection when he says in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul continues with the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus, and he ends by telling them all in verses 22 through 23, to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both our people and to the Gentiles. Well, just like we saw last week, mentioning the Gentiles in the same group of beneficiaries as the Jews was risky business for Paul. 
Upon hearing Paul's address, Festus says, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul doesn't respond to Festus and instead speaks directly to Agrippa in verse 27. And he says, do you believe the prophets? Remember, Agrippa is a Jewish king. Paul is so bold to ask Agrippa such a pointed question. Doing so put Agrippa in a pickle. As the MacArthur Bible commentary put it, if he, meaning Agrippa, affirmed his belief in the prophets, as Paul was asking him him to do, he would also have to admit that what they taught about Jesus' death and resurrection was true, an admission that would make him appear foolish before his Roman friends. Yet, to deny the prophets would outrage his Jewish subjects. Perhaps this is why Agrippa, Festus, and the advisors, after hearing from Paul, retreat. They discuss the outcome of the hearing in private instead of before the crowd. Collectively, they acknowledge that there's no basis for a guilty verdict. However, they also recognize that Paul has requested a hearing before Caesar when he says, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, this is the end of our text for this morning. That's a lot of words. It can tend to make you weary, this text. Why does Paul have to defend himself so many times? But Luke took the time to include each of these accounts. Why? Why did Luke record each trial when he could have summarily told us that Paul defended himself three times, and each time the authority in charge found him innocent? Well, just like in any other part of the Bible, when God repeats himself, we should take notice. This is no accident, and upon further review, I think you'll find that it is familiar. Jesus was accused three times and found to be innocent three times as well. Indeed, there seems to be a parallel here between Jesus' experience and Paul's. Paul's innocence, yet captivity, brings brings to mind Jesus' innocence, and yet his being handed over to the Jews. Jesus was tried and condemned in Pontius Pilate's praetorium, even though Pilate said several times, I find no guilt in him. It all sounds a little familiar. God is always pointing us back to Jesus. His written word is his word is written to reveal himself to us. What does this ultimately show? I'd suggest to you that it shows, among many things, God's sovereignty. His sovereignty is all over Acts. We've seen it time and time again, haven't we? And this text is no different. He was, God was over Jesus' circumstances, and now he's over Paul's. As commentator David Cook stated, in one, he brings human redemption through the death of his son, and in the other, he ensures that the message of redemption is brought to Rome despite the best efforts of its opponents. Well, this text can also make you worry because it makes you think of your own life and defending yourself. Isn't that how we feel sometimes? We have to defend our faith to our non-believing neighbors, friends, coworkers, family members. The list goes on. We may find ourselves in a circumstance at work, school, at friends, at neighbors, or somewhere else, and we find ourselves on the defense. If you're in the world, and we all are, you'll have to defend yourself and your faith. Whether we realize it or not, we, like Paul, are on the witness stand. We, like Paul, are on trial. Maybe not formally in a court proceeding where our faith is the subject of the charges against us, but informally in our daily lives. Through our words, our actions, our resources, our relationships, we are witnesses of Christ. This should come as no surprise. Remember Christ's words in Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses. 
we are constantly defending the gospel. How should we do it? Well, we can look at Paul. By studying how Paul defends himself, we clearly see the framework of how to provide a testimony. We've seen it before, and it's simple, really. Paul details who he was before Christ, his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and then who he is now in Christ. This is really the third time we've heard about Paul's conversion in Acts so far. And this time I feel like he really honed in on the biggest difference. Again, it's the resurrection. It makes all the difference. Well, with that framework of a testimony in place, how do we, in the midst of our circumstances, remain faithful witnesses, as Paul did? How is it that Paul maintained his wits about him during the imprisonment and this persecution? He was imprisoned for several years, defended himself many times, was beaten, yet he remained focused on his task of taking the gospel, <clears throat> excuse me, taking the gospel all the way to Rome. Well, there are three reasons Paul remained a faithful witness. First, God equipped Paul specifically for this task. Second, God made Paul a specific promise in Acts 23.11. And third, God helped Paul. First, I believe God specifically equipped Paul for being a steadfast witness. Paul is your quintessential type A personality. It takes one to know one. I'm one too. We type A's are focused, detail-oriented, driven, and maybe a little bit stubborn. Additionally, Paul was linear and logical in his thought processes. Paul was certainly laser-focused on his mission, and he never wavered. I think this was due in part to Paul's personality. God made him for this task. We can't all be Paul's. Many of us are type B's or C or some combination, and the list goes on, I'm sure, of combinations. The point is that God specifically equipped Paul for this mission in every way imaginable, right down to the very formation of, God's, of Paul's God-given personality. Second, I think Paul was able to remain focused on his mission to be a faithful witness because he focused on the specific promise God gave him. Recall from last week when, when we read Acts 23.11, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What a gracious, good gift God gave him by saying that to him, standing by him, promising him. It had to be a great encouragement to Paul to know the clear calling that God had. Good thing Paul was listening. I wonder sometimes, and maybe you do too, if God has clearly made promises to me or clearly revealed himself or his plans, but I didn't know because I wasn't listening. Maybe some of you, as you sit here today, can think of a specific circumstance in your life where you heard a clear directive or a promise from God. One thing's for certain. If you want to know what God promises, you have to read his word. The Bible is full of God's promises. This convicts me to take time to be quiet and listen to the Lord. In your own life, look for his promises, either in his word or in prayer or in both, and claim them. Personalize them. Write your name within the promises that God makes in his word. Let them carry you, like Paul, through whatever trial, season, or circumstance you find yourself in. This brings us to our third point. Paul was able to remain a faithful witness because God helped him. Acts 26, 22. 
To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. What a simple phrase, the help that comes from God. Throughout our time in studying Acts, I've been convicted over and over again about how I must use my words and not just live my life quietly, differently, hoping others would notice a difference in how, my live, how I live my life and then ask me about it so then I could share. I must use his name, Jesus, and use my words to tell others about the hope I have because of Christ. This can be a little daunting, and sometimes I try to shoulder this burden all on my own and wonder, how could I possibly do that? But I have the help of God. You have the help of God, just like Paul did. I really did not expect when I began studying Paul's trials in this text that today we'd be focusing on the help of God. But that was the truth that kept confronting me. In studying about God's help, we'll discuss four main points. First, God is our help. Second, we need his help because without it, we would miserably fail. Three, we can trust God's promise to help us because he is faithful. And four, because we are image bearers of Christ, we are to be helpful. Well, what does God's word say about his help? We don't have time for an exhaustive study on what God's word says, but a good place to start is Psalms. The exact uh, scripture references are provided for you on your outline, and I'm going to read them so you don't have to flip um, throughout your Bible. First, Psalm 18:6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. This tells us that God will hear our calls for help, and we need to ask. Sometimes that's the hardest step to take to ask. Psalm 54, 4, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the uplifter of my life. God is my helper. My helper is God. These terms are interchangeable. They are one in the same. He is who we should run to first. He is the help we need over small and big things alike. Psalm 75, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. We can trust God to help us with our basic needs and to rescue us from our neediness. Psalm 118, 5 through 7, and you'll see it again in Hebrews 13, 6. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. I wonder if Paul thought of the psalmist's words here as he sat in prison being persecuted for his faith in Christ and his resurrection from the dead. The Lord was on his side, and he knew it. Psalm 121, 1 through 2, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I'd venture to say this one is familiar to many of you. God is the source of our help. Isaiah 41, 10, and 13. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say, fear not. I am the one who helps you. And then in John 14, 16. This is Jesus speaking. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Living on this side of the cross, we are tremendously blessed because we have a helper living in us, the Holy Spirit, who even when we do not know how to ask for help, intercedes on our behalf to God the Father to ask for us. Well, we need God's help, don't we? Because without it, we would fail and fail miserably. We cannot rely on our own strength and expect to get anywhere. God's word even explicitly tells us this. In John 15, 5, where Jesus is talking on the parable of the true vine, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? In Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul doesn't say I can do all things on my own. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. A reminder that our efforts are not the source of our successes. The Lord is the source. Whew, that's a lot of verses on the help of God. But all these verses on God being our helper and the source of our help and listening to our pleas for help are so encouraging, aren't they? Listen to these phrases that I'm going to mention and mentally note if you've said or thought any or all of them before. I need all the help I can get. I feel so helpless. I could really use some help over here. Why didn't you help me? Thank you for all your help. I couldn't have done it without your help. I'm sure we could think of some more on help. I've probably said all these statements many times to people before, but God forgive me. I can't think of very many times when I've prayed them to God, either in asking or in thanking or praising him. But when I think about the times that I have, it's made all the difference. Maybe you can think of a time when you should have sought help from the Lord first, and maybe you didn't. If not, think about seeking God's help when you need help in the future. Seek the Lord's help first, and be sure to give him all the praise, because as Ephesians 3.20 says, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Sometimes we don't ask for help at all, neither from God nor his servants. Can you think of a time when you relied on yourself rather than on the Lord? Maybe it was something small, maybe something huge, but whatever it was, I'd venture to say the help of God makes all the difference. Well, three, we can rely on God's promises to help us, not only because he shows us time and time again in his word how he's done it in the past for others, but also because it's in God's very nature to help us because he's faithful to his promises. Genesis 9.15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Deuteronomy 7.9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Joshua 21.45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 2 Samuel 7:28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. 
Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Well, because I was made in God's image, and you were made in God's image, we are to bear witness to him as our creator in being a helper. Stated otherwise, to reflect Christ, we are to be helpful. We could spend an entire day or week discussing practical ways to be helpful. This is not a how-to session on how to be helpful. However, I do wish to provide you with one example from my own life to consider that I considered on how I am called to be a helper. Indeed, I know I'm a helper because God tells me in his word explicitly so. Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Of course, these were God's words right before he created Eve. I am my husband's helper. This creational mandate I've grown to embrace in very surprising ways. God used this verse, Genesis 2.18, to pierce my heart and reveal, if not expose in a painful way, how I was not helpful to my husband. Truly, this verse ended up being the main reason why I quit my job. I clung to it for a long time, thinking the finances were helpful, the insurance benefits were helpful to my self-employed husband. If you're self-employed, you know that individual families don't have a lot of buying power in the insurance marketplace. These financial helps were, yeah, a little helpful, but not in the way that God would have for us. I was really tired, stressed out, always thinking of the billable hours like a monkey on my back, wondering what the partners thought of my latest work, how he was advocating for clients, how they perceived my potential. I was miserable and no help, so I quit. And I guess the biggest blessing for me being home was how helpful I was to my husband. It was such a big surprise, and it shouldn't have been, but it was. Now, my husband will tell you that my helpfulness goes much further than just him being helped. Now, I'm not advocating that we all go and quit our jobs tomorrow, or that helpfulness has anything to do with work. In fact, in my home growing up, my mom worked full-time most of my childhood, and that is how she helped my dad. Helpfulness looks different for a different person. However, let this stir up in your mind how you are at being helpful so as to reflect Christ as we are his image bearers. Helpful to your husband if you're married, your friends, your children, grandchildren, your church, your neighbors, your coworkers. We are to reflect God's image. And if God explicitly tells us he is our help over and over again in the scriptures as we've read today, then part of his image bearing is for us to be helpful to others as part of showing the love of Christ. Think about the people in your life. I bet some of them need help. Take a minute and think, can you write a name down of a person in your life that needs help? Can you think of a way that you could offer to help them? If you can, write it down so you don't forget. But if you couldn't think of anyone right away, of a name or a way, consider including this in your prayers. Pray for an opportunity, a person to help. He will deliver 
I can guarantee you of that. Well, my friends, God's word is a rich and deep and glorious well. If we were to study these passages together again next year, they'd surely reveal new truths or reinforce ones we've studied already. How thankful I am for Paul and his example of a faithful witness. It's my prayer that we, like Paul, remain focused on Christ, holding fast to his promises, asking for his help, relying on his help, and remaining steadfast to the calling he gave us to be his witnesses. Thanks.